applying for a tenure track job is not a sprint, it's a marathon. So what I mean by that is, don't leave it until you finish your PhD or you're in your last year to start looking for jobs and developing your skills. Start early, develop those skills, nurture those relationships. So when you're in your last year and you're finishing your, your PhD, things will be so much easier. Welcome to the 63rd episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anyone science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyist. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jaron. Hi. So even as a PhD student, I would say it's not really clear how to have a successful career progression in academia. Usually, any questions are answered with a statement like, that is different for everybody, or the whole concept of tenet track is shrouded in mystery. Today, we're talking with an expert on the topic, Emmanuel Tsekhevis, who is a professor and research director at Lancaster University and provides advice that helps PhD students and postdocs secure tenure-track jobs in academia. So let's start. If you like this episode, you can follow us or leave us a rating on your favorite podcast listening platform. This really helps us out and makes this podcast possible. Welcome, Emmanuel. We are so happy to have you on, your, on our podcast today. It's my genuine pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really look, looking forward to it. Yes, of course. Uh, before we get started with our fascinating topic, uh, we would love to know more about you. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Who are you? What is your expertise? Any interesting hobbies? Sure. Um, you've already covered my name. And as you mentioned, I'm a, a full professor. We call them chair in the UK uh, with my own research group and also research director of an international um, research group between our university and a private university in, in Malaysia. Uh, my journey started also uh, 15 years ago when I finished my PhD and was looking for um, for jobs like uh, many PhD students and, and your listeners out there um, and managed through trial and error uh, to find my way and um, climbed fairly quickly um, from PhD graduate to professor in 15 years and Seeing a lot of my colleagues, uh, peers and students struggling with, with getting jobs, I decided to do something about it. So now I'll just lift up the hood of academia and offering insight and knowledge, um, giving people a, a bit of a guiding light on their journey. Uh, in terms of hobbies, um, I love dancing uh, so much that actually several years ago, I spent a whole month in Cuba to learn Cuban salsa. Uh, went to um, a lot of dancing workshops, um, also like um, Greek and Cretan dancing, and I play uh, an, a musical instrument, a string-based musical instrument that you only find in the island of Crete uh, in, in Greece. Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah, music is my cup of tea. Nice. Cool. Have you always been interested in dancing? No, it's um, started um, actually in my mid-30s. Okay. There's still hope for you, Jaron. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's been never taking me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, she's been taking me to some. She has taken me to a dance cl- uh, class before. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, well, uh, bringing it back then to the the main topic for, of our episode today. So the elusive tenure track. Can you maybe explain to our listeners what the tenure track actually means and when are you quote unquote on it? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, there's, there's a, as you said, it's shrouded in mystery about what, what it is. Um, 
It's a fancy term to basically um, signify a permanent job uh, that once you've um, you are on it, um, you've you've got your assistant professorship, or in the UK they call it lectureship, um, and basically you're on a track to to become um, a full time academic. It starts when you first land uh, a lectureship or an assistant professorship, mm. and usually. Um, the first three to six years, depending on the country you're doing your um, lectureship, is count as a probation. So you have certain um, targets in the industry that we'll call them KPI, key performance indicators. They usually relate to research that you need to reach. Mm-hmm. And once you achieve those, then you are officially progressing to what they call a tenure track. Um and you've officially member of the faculty. Okay. Okay. And are those always very clear, like the the, the what you need to reach to get in? Um, on the whole, it's things related to research, but it differs from institution to institution mm-hmm. and from country to country. So to give you an example, in the UK, in most institutions you achieve tenure if you meet your goals within the first three three years of your appointment. Mm-hmm. Exams could include that every year you submit uh, one to two research grants as a principal investigator or co-investigator, and you have you submit one to um, journal publications or high esteem publications, and also you complete your teacher training. Uh, in the US, it's actually longer. Uh, it's up to six years, uh, although within the first three years, you've got an interim probation where they kind of check your levels of where you are in, in different parts of the world. This is different years, but the, the process is more or less the same. Mm. Okay. okay. And what does the timeline on average look like? Um, it's between, I would say, three to five years overall. Uh, from when you get your first appointment, and that's when you become assistant professor and then move upwards. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you in in the US, you start as a lecturer, mm. and then you become assistant professor. In the UK, you become you start as a lecturer A, and then you become a lecturer B. Uh, in other parts of the world, you you start as a lecturer and you become an assistant professor. Or you you start as an assistant professor, but you you only confirmed after you know you pass your probation. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yes. So you already alluded to some of the differences in different countries, but are there any, you also mentioned some of the KPIs, as it were, that you might need to hit to to reach your goal. Um, Are there any really big, stark differences between countries that you can think of, like really massive outliers or anything like that? Um, There's differences in, in, it depends also, quite a lot on the institutions mm. uh, along as the country. So for instance, you have um, you know, top or high ranking universities in different parts of the world, and they tend to have very, very similar processes, you know, independent of the country they're based. Mm. And you have mid-ranking or lower ranking universities, which they, they try to up the game to, to mm. gain reputation in those ranking tables. Um, and quite often, they would have very, um, so I would say, ambitious KPIs. Mm. So they will ask newly appointed academics 
um, to publish uh, high quality, high impact papers in high esteem journals, and they will ask for many. Mm. Um, so the quantity will be higher sometimes than the quality because um, in some ranking tables, your ranking depends on the number of publications an institution has rather mm. than the quality. So they, they play the numbers game. Mm. And also, typically in uh, lower mid-ranking universities, you have more teaching workload, so you have less opportunity to do research. So it's, it's unfair when you're asked to have um, a lot of research outputs when you're not given really the space mm -hmm. um, to develop your research. So in that sense, it might actually be better to go, if you could manage to get into the higher ranked uh, uh, universities, it, you might have it, quote unquote, easier. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's say for PhD students now, um, how, how do you work towards this? What are the steps you need to take to uh, be accepted into a, a talent track position? Very good question. Um, several. Um, to um, basically get a tenure track job, you need, um, or you'll be asked to contribute in three main areas. For course, the, the first one is research. And in terms of research, they would want you to bring research funding from external funding bodies in the country that you're based or internationally um, to produce research outputs, graduate PhD students, form your own research group. Um, also, Teaching is another big part. Um, so you'll be expected to deliver teaching programs, develop new teaching programs, supervise um, and tutor a student work, assess. Um, also, and the third part is called academic citizenship or academic engagement or academic management and basically is being part of the academic management of the department you belong to. So that could mean being a research director when you're more senior, when you're more junior. It could be being a director of a program or being in charge of the admissions, the marketing, the recruitment, or, or the um, uh, equal um, opportunities and, and inclusion. Um, so when you apply for a tenure track job, you need to demonstrate that you have ideally some skills and definitely you have the potential for those three areas. Um, and it really starts by, of course, as you're doing a PhD, you're developing your research, you're developing research outputs. Uh, the research funding is a bit more challenging unless you're working with other PhDs to submit or with your supervisor to submit research grant proposals that align that way. Uh, teaching is very important. So any teaching opportunities you have, formal or informal, this will help you develop a teaching portfolio, which is how you demonstrate to hiring committees that, look, I've done a bit of teaching, a bit of assessment, supervised students, I can do this. And the third point is, is leadership. And, and this could be small roles. So it could be, for instance, uh, within the department, you form a, um, a PhD group, a PhD support group, or you're a coordinator of PhD students, um, or you're involved in some committees, or even externally, you co-organize um, uh, a PhD program at a workshop or at a conference. 
I would say that in our field, it's quite normal to do a postdoc and then during the postdoc sort of work towards getting the grants and writing a lot of grants and trying to get the money like that to, to move up. Um, but I do have to say that I don't see a lot of postdocs doing any teaching in the Netherlands. Yes. Neither do the PhD students for that matter. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think at least in our field, there were some instances of it, but definitely not as not a lot, I not think. Lot. You know. It might actually be difficult then to go to another country where something like that is very expected. It's, it's generally universal, I would say, that you've, you start with a PhD, then you move to a postdoc. Mm. Um, or sometimes you do your PhD while you do your postdoc. Um, so you, you, you get, um, basically a research assistant job mm. and at the same time you do the PhD. For instance, in the UK, you can easily do that. In fact, the institution will pay for your tuition fees as well. Mm. Um, so it's, it's useful as you, as you already mentioned in terms of getting some research ground experience, maybe some more publications. Um, but it doesn't necessarily help with teaching unless you specifically pursue that. Yeah. Um, what I've seen happen, unfortunately, with a lot of postdocs is two things. Either they they focus so much on the research because, of course, that's the whole job is you mm -hmm. know to 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 delve deeper into research that they neglect the other two elements, the teaching and the academic citizenship. Um, so it means when they apply for jobs, they can talk about the research, uh, but not the other elements. So I've I've seen postdoc veterans actually losing jobs to PhD graduates who have a more holistic academic background because they have the other points. Mm. The second element is uh, being a postdoc and being a lecturer are quite different. When you're a postdoc, you do a lot of the research, you conduct the experiments in the lab. When you're a lecturer assistant professor, you don't do the research, mm. you manage the research, you bring the research grant and you have postdocs, PhD students doing the research. So. If you involve, if you have many contracts as a postdoc, sometimes I've seen people that they have an amazing research track record, but when it comes to the interview, they talk about what research they do rather than where they're going to apply for funding, how they're going to build up the research group. Mm. And the third point is sometimes being a very good researcher uh, may be a negative because unfortunately some of my colleagues may think this is a person I want to keep as a postdoc. I don't want them to apply for a mm. lectureship. So they may sabotage. And unfortunately I've seen that happening. Um, and, and also I've heard from colleagues and friends happening as well. Mm. So you now touched on uh, several of the factors that are quite important for transitioning to towards the tenure track and eventually uh, making professorship. Can you shed some light on exactly how that decision is made? So what maybe the committee behind who's actually making the decision and how do they uh, base that decision based on these uh, factors? Sure. Um, there's two different processes. The one is the application and the other is the interview. I say they're different process because they've got different weighting. Mm. I'll talk about that. So you submit your application, which usually composes of a lot of documents, your full CV or resume, cover letter explaining why you're best fit for the job. Um, some institutions will also ask for a teaching statement where you talk about the teaching you've done and a teaching portfolio where you demonstrate 
what you've done. You have some samples of feedback from students you receive, the, the evaluation you got for the module you taught, and a research statement where you talk about the research you've done and what is your future plan for research. They will review all these documents. Usually it's a committee of between three to five people that blindly and independently review this. Usually they do it through an online system um, and they score it. And depending on the score, then the top three to four individuals that will be shortlisted for an interview. Um, I have to say that the vast majority, so over 90% of tenure track jobs, they're funded by the department um, and the university. Unlike the majority of postdoc jobs that they're funded through a specific research funding project. Um, and this is an important distinction. And that's why it's a, it's a route to permanent job. So um, once you've shortlisted and you're invited to an interview, uh, in several institutions, you'll be given a task uh, to do. And it could be, for instance, um, doing a micro-teaching. So for 10 to 15 minutes uh, in front of the panel, of uh, interviewers, so the panel is a group of usually four to five academics uh, from the department you're applying to. Um, you 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 present teaching, or it could be they ask you about a specific uh, research proposal uh, that you present, and then you have the formal interview, who lasts between half an hour to an hour. On average, I would say about forty minutes, mm. and this is also a panel interview where. They were going around asking questions related to research, teaching, and academic leadership. Mm. Um, I did mention at the start that it's a different process, and, and this is because the interview really is where the decision is made. I've been in many situations where applicants, they looked amazing on paper, mm. but at the interview, there was an outlier. One, you thought, yes, we'll invite him. For the interview but they don't look as strong as the other two and in fact they're the ones you decide this is the person we want to hire mm. because of course you interact in person or online you find out more about whether they're a team player um, and also how well they can communicate their work but also how they respond to the questions mm. uh, i've been for example in an interview where until the very last question that in that candidate answered everything perfectly it was the perfect candidate and we uh, in my mind this was the person to hire and Lisa came to the very last question and that changed everything and what was that question <laughs> what are your future plans for the next ah. five years no oh. well <laughs> intense it's a big question yeah. also <laughs> It's a standard question, usually one of the mm -hmm. last questions they ask you at the interview. But he didn't have a clear plan or... He had a plan, but it's not what you say at an interview. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. I mean, I've been in many situations where I say, no, you, you shouldn't be saying that, or you should have been writing your application, or you should mm. say it in a different way. Mm. Okay. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. 
Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Well, in that light, um, what are common mistakes that people make when trying to get the tenure job? Yeah, the, the first of all is it's very easy once you're experienced hiring committee member to see the ones that they apply for every single job out there. So they don't customize at all. Their application is a blanket application. Sometimes they even may have the wrong name of the institution. <laughs> mm. um, so that's one mistake, you know, quality over quantity, really customizing the application. The other, which is I've, I've seen 80% of applications and in interview people talking about what they have to gain as opposed to the value that will be bringing mm. to the specific department or institution. So tell them what's in it for them rather than what's in it for you. Yeah. Uh, is, is, is a key message. One I've already covered is, is about how do you communicate your skills. Um, sometimes some interviewees, they talk for ages, very, very long answers, but they really don't tell you mm. what you've asked them for. There is specific interviewing techniques with a specific structure you can focus to answer in a very effective and efficient manner. And not everyone is using that, unfortunately. Um, and another thing is talking about negative experiences. And it's common, you know, unfortunately, in academia, not everything is positive, but at an interview, on application, you always bring the positive life. Even if it's something, a negative experience you have, you should turn it into a positive. Uh, because again, this is something the hiring committee picks up and thinks, hmm, well, that's not the person we want to, to bring an institution. So now that you've covered some of the mistakes people tend to make, how can someone, for example, stand out more as a candidate when actually applying? In a positive would, way, of course. <laughs> yeah. I would say there's, there's four main strategies. And it really starts by defining your academic um, identity and brand. Mm. Um, you know, where you've, you know, what topics 
in, in terms of research you want to pursue, what um, principles guide your teaching philosophy, and you're able to communicate them. Ha- have been clear about this can help pinpoint to search committees the unique value you offer. Uh, the second one I would say is cultivating a diverse professional network. Um, so once you define your brand, you know you you build your team, and 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 this is where um, you've um, network beyond your institution, beyond your field. You seek mm-hmm. out mentors and brands how to connect with other researchers because this way um, you can get connections that can write recommendations letters for you, but also you can. Um, gain access to unadvertised opportunities. Uh, the third thing, and this alludes to what I mentioned before, is about conducting a targeted job search. Um, as I said, quality trumps quantity of applications. So being selective and strategic is important. Identify the institutions you want to be working and research them thoroughly before you're applying. Find out about the, the culture they have, the initiatives, the programs, the strategies that have the values and you know you can even leverage the networks you've already created to get some insights into these mm-hmm. um and of course building an online presence and uh is 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 important nowadays um and this is not just just having a website but engaging in discussions in social media having a linkedin presence um, it's, I would say, quite important now in, in academia. And there's a lot of such committees that will look at people when they apply, and there are others that they will also doing search by linking um, another um, online systems to, to find suitable candidates. Hmm. It surprises me since I would say the presence of scientists on social media is still minimal <laughs> yeah i it, think you have some outliers i guess yeah <laughs> it is but this is where it's really heading mm. um so those ones that have those they, they they have added value and more um unique selling points so these are the ones that stand out and it's all about standing out in a sea of applicants mm. Mm. Sure. um are there a lot of different roads people take to to get into tenure and to to uh, for, uh, get into a professorship in the end? Are there different paths you can take? There's two and a half, I would say, main paths. Um, one is, as we said, you um, the most common after your PhD, you go for a postdoc or a number of postdocs, and then from then, when a relevant opportunity opens up, you apply for that. The other one is going straight from a PhD to a lectureship, provided you have a teaching portfolio. And the other one, which is less common, this is, you know, the half-beat where it comes is sometimes people from the industry that have industrial experience or experience outside academia that actually can gain a lectureship. Um, It's more common to find them in more established professions, so for instance, in health sciences and medicine, where you've got someone with experience and um, a lot of practice, that then they become an academic 
and they follow that process. Okay. okay. I actually was wondering a little bit more on the sort of paths that you can take. Um, what would you advise someone, for example, if they already have like the funding, they they have like some sort of social media presence, but maybe the department that they're they want to work at doesn't have any positions open. Should they apply somewhere else or would wait it out or try to apply? What would you suggest in that situation? In any case, I would say connect with the persons and the institutions you want one day to be. You have nothing to lose by doing that, only to gain. Mm. Um, the academic world, actually, you'll find is very small and people sometimes, they circulate, they move from one institution to another. So always be nice to people because you never know where you'll find them through your academic journey. You know, mm. they could be reviewing your paper, they could be reviewing your research grant, they could be in a hiring committee or they could have a, an open opportunity. Um, it, it depends on where you are on your, on, on your journey and, on, of course, your, your finances. Um, you know, you, won't, you wouldn't want to wait for five years for a position to open. Mm. Uh, if maybe mm. there is a year and you know that actually there is a position to be open and you can do something else in the meantime, yes. Um, but what is important is to maintain that contact with that institution and at the same time um, I, I would personally apply somewhere else, gain that experience, that track record. So then when that ideal position in that ideal institution opens, I've got more experience mm. um, uh, and uh, a longer CV I can use. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So then when you actually become an assistant professor and are on the tenor track, as they say, um, what what does that then look like? What are the key milestones and expectations for, for someone? Uh, I have to say, it looks like mayhem at the start. <laughs> it's very, very challenging um, because you've, you're working with a very different mindset, whether you came as a PhD graduate or as a postdoc. It's a very different world. Mm. Everything is new to you. Um You've got a lot of teaching, usually, in most institutions to be doing. And this takes work to prepare your materials uh, for teaching, to practice, um, to develop your skills of standing in, in front of um, a lecture theater or in labs. And um, transmitting your knowledge doesn't mean that because you have a knowledge, you can uh, transmit it unless you've got already a lot of experience. You have admin duties, which are not always fun, but they, they come with a job. And you've got those specific targets you need to meet for your probation. So it can be very stressful. And because you tend to spend a lot of time with teaching, sometimes your research suffer, unless you're in research institutions where they have a good mentoring system mm. and a lot of support. But to be honest with you, that's rare. Mm. Um. So unfortunately, there is a lot of um, junior academics that I see burning out uh, because of the pressures um, they they have. Some that really thrive and they can really navigate through that. They've got a very clear path, very clear mindset. They've got the skills. But most tend to be sucked by the vortex of teaching. 
And what additional sort of common struggles do you see early career academics struggle with on on while navigating the tenure track? Um, it's it's a bit of identity at the start if they haven't established their identity um, and where they want to focus. Because the idea is, in order to become a full professor, you need to, uh, in a sense, demonstrate that you're an expert in a, in a very niche field. Mm. And actually, I went through that mistake uh, when I first entered and I was applying for research funding in a lot of different areas. And I, I wasn't portraying myself as an expert in one. The mm. same with my publications. They were all over the place. Mm. It was only when I got a mentor where she said, look, Emmanuel, you need to pick up an area and focus on that when uh, things uh, became easier. Okay. Okay. Um, what final pieces of advice do you have for PhD students or early postdocs uh, who are considering pursuing a tenor track job? I think um, two key advices. The first one is um, applying for a tenure track job is not a sprint, it's a marathon. So what I mean by that is don't leave it until you've finish your PhD or you're in your last year to start looking for jobs and developing your skills, start early. Uh, if you ever run for a marathon without any training, as I've done in the past, you realize, you know, if you manage to finish, your whole body aches for weeks to come. Mm. Okay. Uh, it's the same with the tenure track. Start early, develop those skills, nurture those relationships. So when you're in your last year and you're finishing your, your PhD, things will be so much easier. And the second thing that actually has had the most profound impact for me, but I see from colleagues, is get a mentor or a group of mentors. So if, again, I use the analogy of the sports, if you look at high-performance athletes, they have a lot of different mentors and coaches, uh, some to encourage them emotionally, others to deal with their training, others to deal with their fitness, with their nutrition. Um, having a group of mentors that can help with a different aspect of academia, research, teaching, um, generally career advice, um, will make such a difference. It will make the journey so, so much easier. Things started change for me once I got a mentor. And I, I, I wish I had done it sooner. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us today about this interesting topic. Uh, we really loved having you on our podcast. If people would like to find you, and how can how can they best do so? Sure, uh, they can reach me at uh, Twitter and Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, my hashtag is uh, at um, PhD to Prof Mentor. Uh, also in LinkedIn, if they can spell my very long email. <laughs> and uh, also have um, a free weekly newsletter called The Academic Insider. Mm -hmm. So if people can Google The Academic Insider, they'll find every week I um, post um, practical advice and information in how to get people closer to tenure track and, and other academic career-related um, matters. Cool. Okay, well, for our listeners, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, you can reach out to us via our website, thestrugglingscientist.com, 
You can also check out our website for some really cool science-inspired merch and sign up for our awesome Journal of the Struggling Scientist AKR newsletter. Uh, and if you have enjoyed this episode, then leave us a rating on your favorite podcast listening platform as it helps us grow. And we're now also available on YouTube. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Jaron, which ones are those again? Twitter, ins- well, X, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and also YouTube, as you said. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope to see you all again next time. Bye. Bye.